with uh, the rapid turnover that is a part of uh, life in D.C., I don't know how many of uh, you know and recognize Graydon and Kelsey Zorzi, but they had a, just a great impact in our church life. Uh, Graydon and Kelsey came to uh, Christ the King in uh, 2010 and served as our pastoral associate and worked in our youth ministry as well uh, for the for three years, from 2010 to 2013, and I know I, I speak for many when I say that we just have a very fond uh, place in our hearts for both, uh, both Graydon and, and Kelsey as well. Graydon is now pursuing a PhD from uh, Yale in the subject of religious studies and political science, while Kelsey is working in international and human rights law at the UN. So, Graydon, we're delighted that you would uh, come back and visit with us and open God's word for us as we prepare to celebrate our 10th anniversary. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here today. I pray that you would help us all to inquire into your word, to try to understand what it has to say to us. Uh, we thank you that you're present here with us, and we ask that you would bless us all as we follow you and serve you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I am very excited to be back. Thinking about this 10th anniversary, I was remembering the five-year anniversary, which feels like it was very recent. We were in a, a boat club in Alexandria, as some of you probably remember. I got to MC that event. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I assume the 10-year anniversary will be even more fun. Um, sorry we can't join you for that, but it is wonderful to be here to be part of the, the lead-up to it. And I've got a fantastic text today. This is actually one of the densest texts in the entire Bible, and we are therefore not going to make it through the whole thing. If we tried to make it through the whole thing, you would be here for significantly longer than you're probably interested in spending in church this morning. Um, but So we're going to make it through the first few verses. Uh, but as we think about those verses, we actually have to look back a little bit. As you probably know, the section headings in the Bible are... Very helpful, but added um, later. They're not part of, you know, the original text. And sometimes the section headings help with some things, but they obscure others. And one thing that is lost with this section heading is that it's harder to recognize that actually there's a single sentence that starts all the way at the beginning of verse 9 and ends at the end of verse 17. Now, it's important that we see that there's one sentence in all those verses only because the thought that uh, Paul is developing in the verses that we're looking at are a continuation of what happened right before it. So let me read you a little bit of what happened starting in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So Paul is talking about the church, uh, the Colossians, and this is a church that he doesn't know all that well, but he's been praying for them. He's very excited to hear um, about their faith, asking they may be, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. This is still one sentence. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. In light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that's where we pick up our, um, the verses that you see printed in your leaflet. And that is still all a single thought. And it's critical that it's a single thought because what 
um, Paul has just talked about before we get to the passage that we're going to focus on today is this idea that the people he's writing to used to be under the authority of something nefarious and evil and harmful, right? You're in the domain of darkness, and they have recently been transferred into the position of being under some other authority, which is good. Now, there's certainly a lot to say about the fact that the Bible seems to think that all humans are either in one position or another. You're either under the authority of darkness or you're under the authority of Christ. Now, we're not going to be focusing on the scary side of that today because our passage focuses on the light and wonderful and exciting side, so we get to talk about that. Um, Though there is obviously quite a lot of interesting things to say about the other side of that picture. But what Paul is about to do in the verses that we're looking at is to explain why it's a good thing to be under the authority of Christ. Now, this is actually a pretty relevant question, especially for people in this culture, because our culture isn't huge on being under the authority of other people. Um, I was was reminded of this recently. There was a a sale of an NBA franchise. I don't know how many other people here follow professional basketball, but this was a record-breaking sale. The Houston Rockets were sold for $2.2 billion. Um, And a current owner in the NBA, a guy named Mark Cuban, gives advice to this new owner in the NBA, and he uh, tells him to be yourself and have fun. And now it's kind of a throwaway line, right? I mean, be yourself. But actually... That's the kind of advice that you see constantly around us, right? Be yourself, be true to yourself. Um, and we live in a culture where the idea that, it, that is very uh, common and believable and um, very plausible to almost anyone growing up in this culture is that you're going to find freedom and fulfillment and um, achievement by being true to yourself, by looking inside yourself to discover who you are And then rather than submitting to or looking for the expectations and requirements of someone else, some authority structure, you would look to your own, whatever expectations you find laid on yourself based on looking inside yourself. Now, there are certainly some good things to be said for this. Um, It's thinking for yourself. and I mean, there, there are all sorts of good things that could be said about this, but there also are potentially some issues with it. One of which is the idea that um, the method of trying to figure out who you are by looking inside yourself may not work all that well. There may be, we should at least consider the possibility that in order to understand who you are, you may need to look to something outside of yourself as well as looking inside yourself. But regardless, we see that in, in our culture, there's a little bit of a problem with this idea of being under authority. So what Paul is trying to do here, which is to convince people that it's good to be under the authority of Christ, is, uh, is pretty relevant for us. So we're going to look at that, um, and we're going to see a couple of things. First, we'll see that Paul tell, answers the question about Christ, um, who is he? It tells us who Jesus is, trying to answer uh, who, who is the, why would we want to be under this king's authority? So the first thing he's going to say is, who is he? Then we're going to see what right he has to rule over us. So if he's a king, he should have some sort of right to be king, and that's what we're going to see explained. And then finally, we'll see what kind of king he is, or what is he doing with his power? That's what we want to look at. Now, the question of who is he is summarized for us in the very first line of our text. 
He is the image of the invisible God. Now, what other passages in the Bible does that bring to mind? He's the image of the invisible God, image of God. Reminds you of, but possibly of humans, right? Humans are described as created in the image of God. Now, that's something pretty interesting. So humans are created in the image of God. Christ is the image of God. What that suggests is that Christ is um, something of an archetype. There's some sense in which he's the original and everyone, every other human is a, is a derivative or a copy, is, is sort of built on the model that Christ is the original of. Or also archetype can, can uh, capture the idea that, uh, of being the perfect instantiation of something. So you could have the archetype of a hero or the archetype of a villain, and that would be someone who is, sort of captures everything it means to be a hero or to be a villain or to be a mentor. Um, so Christ is... is the archety- is the archetype in the sense that he's the original on which humans are created. We are in the image. He is the image. And also that he is the perfect example of humans. Now, to think about that, we have to think about what it means to be made in the image of God briefly. There's obviously a lot that could be said about this, but there are a couple things that are particularly helpful to recognize here, and they're actually pretty intuitive. So to be in the image of something is to represent that thing, right? An image represents something and to represent in potentially two senses. So the first sense is that an image looks like something else, right? That looks like the thing that it's representing. So you can apply that to humans, thinking that humans are in the image of God. It means that humans are similar to God in some ways. How are we similar to God? Well, we have intelligence, we have complex emotions, we have personal relationships, we have, we're purposeful. Um, all of these things are qualities that God shares too. He's intelligent, he has complex emotions, he enters into personal relationship, he's built for communion, just like we, built for community, just like we are. So there's a sense in which humans are like God, and that's part of the way in which we represent God, which we are in the image of God. Another sense of uh, represent is to uh, act under the authority of. So if you're representing an organization or a government, you're sort of acting with authority from that organization. And humans represent God in that way too. We're given dominion, right? And in Genesis, we're sort of put on God's earth to rule it in his name um, in the way that he would. Uh, And that's actually tied up in this idea of image uh, intimately. In the ancient Near East, at the time this was written, it was very common for kings to set up statues, images of themselves throughout their domain to sort of represent themselves, represent their authority to their people. So humans are sort of these, these living representations of God who represent his authority. Okay, so if that's part of what it means to be in the image of God is these two things, to represent in terms of being like, to represent in terms of exercising authority on behalf of, Christ is the archetype in the sense that what we do imperfectly, he does perfectly. So humans are like God in some ways. Christ is God. Christ is perfectly like God because he is God incarnate. You can look at humans and learn something about God. You can look at Christ and learn far, far more about God. And that's an idea that shows up all over the Bible. Um, I'm thinking of one passage in particular, actually two, but one in Hebrews, we'll start with that one. There's a passage at the beginning of Hebrews where it says that long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to his people through the prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, 
who is the exact imprint of his nature and the radiance of his glory. And so the idea is that Christ is the fullest revelation of God. Then in um, uh, the Gospel of John, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says that no one has seen God, but God who is at his side has made him known, talking about Jesus who's God incarnate has made God known. So if you want to understand God, you need to look to Jesus. Now this actually brings us back to uh, the, the idea that we started with of why um, it might be good to be under the authority of God and these worries we have about authority and about the possibility of maybe we really need to look inside to get a grasp on, um, on what the right expectations for our lives are, what it would mean to be free, what it would mean to find fulfillment. If we're actually made in the image of God, then to understand ourselves, we really need to know something about God. If Christ is the ultimate revelation of God, then to understand ourselves, we're going to need to know something about Christ. So here's this idea that we were talking about, that there might be something external to us that's going to help explain what's internal to us. So Christ does perfectly what we do imperfectly in the sense that he reveals God perfectly, where we, as re- we reveal God imperfectly. Christ also does perfectly what we do imperfectly in the sense that he acts with God's authority perfectly and we do imperfectly. Look at this, this second line here. Um, he is the firstborn over all creation. Anybody been visited by any Jehovah's Witnesses recently? I got a visit from some Jehovah's Witnesses um, last week. Some very nice ladies. They came up and talked to me on my porch for a little while. Uh, and uh, we were talking about Jesus, and I was explaining to them that actually Jehovah's Witnesses are following an ancient heresy. It was, uh, you know, it's called Arianism. Anyway, they were, we, had a, we had a nice conversation about that. Um, but they pointed to this passage, and they said, oh, you know, what about the firstborn of all creation? So what I had to explain, or tried to explain, was that this idea of the firstborn of all creation isn't saying that Jesus is created, um, and you can see that it's not saying that he's created just by this, what follows, right? So it says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. By him all things were created. So if he is created, then he would have, but all things were created by him. So he would have needed to exist before he existed in order to create himself, which makes your brain hurt because it's actually impossible. So There's no way this could possibly mean that Jesus is created. What it does mean is that Jesus has authority, that Jesus is the king above all kings, the one who is in authority over the world. And that's exactly the way this phrase is used. It's used that way of David, for example. In Psalm 89, 27, it says, I will make him, talking about David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Um, The idea is that Jesus is the highest of the kings of the earth, right? We are... Humans are meant to be in authority. Jesus is the one who preeminently comes with authority. Now, it's actually something pretty fascinating here. Um, Jesus is intended to be in authority over the world. He is the image. He is the firstborn. He is the one in authority. But didn't Jesus come in response to sin? So one thing you can see here is that the incarnation actually isn't this backup plan. God understood before he made you, before he made me, that we would sin against him, fall away from him, and that in order to make our lives go right, in order to make his creation work out the way he wanted it to, he would become incarnate, suffer and die in our place. He knew that before making us. 
The plan all along was for the image of God to rule over the world and for all the people who are made in the image of God to be under his authority. That's been the plan from the beginning. Which, again, helps us to think about why Jesus would need to be, why it would make sense for him to have a right to rule, though we're going to get into that question a little bit more in a moment, but we can see already this was the plan all along. That doesn't quite tell you why it's a good plan, but that it has been the plan all along. And we can see that actually in another verse from Hebrews, which I mentioned a moment ago. Um, in, the, in the book of Hebrews, they quote this psalm that says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So this is this, it's referencing this dominion language from Genesis. And then it goes on, now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So we were meant to be in authority over this world to exercise that authority in godly ways. We don't really see that. I don't think humans are doing a fantastic job of being in control of the situation. But what we see is the one who can take control, the one who has the ability to harmonize everything and to allow everything to run together perfectly in Jesus. And that was the plan from the beginning. So, if you think about the idea that Jesus is what we were meant to be, that, that we are in the image and Jesus is the image, that again helps us to think about what it would look like to try to look inside ourselves. We've already said, well, if you want to look inside yourself, um, you're going to need to know something about God if you're really made in the image of God. But Jesus also shows us what it looks like to be human. He's the, the perfect human in a way. If you're trying to, to form yourself into something, to become something by looking inside yourself, you're not going to be able to avoid looking for exemplars, for example, to other people to see how does this person do it? Who do I, what do I like from this person? What do I dislike? And the problem with looking for examples around us is that there are no perfect examples of humans around us. Jesus is the only example of what a human is really meant to be. And so when you, when you read the Gospels, you can have a pretty a powerful experience that a lot of people have had of, of looking at Jesus and seeing his power, his confidence, his poise, his, um, the excellence which, with, with which he meets every situation, his mercy. And it, you see that that's what a person should be like. That's what it lo- Even people who don't like Christianity at all can't help but be impressed with Jesus because he is the sum of all human excellences. If you want to know what it looks like to be human, if you want to know what it looks like to be yourself, you actually have to know what it looks like to be Jesus because you were meant to be that authoritative, that kind, that humble, that poised, that caring, that courageous, all of those things were meant to hold together in you in the same way they hold together in Jesus. The highest perfection of human nature is to be like Christ. Now, that leads us fully into the question that we have to ask next, and that the passage answers next, which is, why does Jesus have a right to rule? Why is he the firstborn over all creation? 
This is a, a question that has received basically two answers from all of these. I mean, there are a lot of answers to it, but essential, but two main ones from all the theologians throughout the, throughout the church's history and people reading the Bible and thinking about it. Basically, they've said two things. Why, does, why should God command us? Why should we obey everything he says? The first reason that people have given is what's talked about as the maker's right. So the idea that because God made us, because we're dependent on him, he has the right to tell us what to do. The second thing is that uh, is God's goodness and wisdom. Now I want to talk about each of those and actually I want to show you that those things are exactly what comes up in verse 16. And as we do that, notice what, what word verse 16 begins with. It begins with four, right? It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Now, if, if four is telling you it's explaining the previous sentence, so if the firstborn of all creation is telling you that Jesus is created, this is a pretty bad explanation for why he's created. But if the previous sentence is telling you that Jesus is in authority over everything, this is an explanation that makes a lot of sense. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's think about that first, that first reason that's been given for why we should obey God, why, that, why God has a right to command us. And that's the idea that by him all things were created and that all things depend on him, that all things hold together in him. Generally, we're actually willing to grant that dependence gives the authority to direct, right? Think about children. So if your children are, are living in your house, you think that gives you a certain right to tell them what to do. I mean, it's, it's, it's my house, it's my food, it's my couch. It's, you know what I mean? Like, you need to do what I tell you until you're on your own because you depend on me, right? Now, obviously, there's uh, some sense in which the dependence of children on parents is limited because children depend on their parents, but they could depend on somebody else. Somebody else could step in and provide those things for them. It's not like their every life and breath is dependent on you. So there's, there's some limit to dependence. So there's some limit to authority. But there's absolutely no limit to our dependence on God. If he stops upholding us at any instant, we will wink out of existence. What in the world could limit his right to command us? We are entirely and completely dependent on him. Now, there's some concerns, though, that people have about authority based on dependence, mainly that we've seen it abused so often. It's pretty easy to think of examples of somebody who's an authority figure. Um, somebody's depending on that person for something, whether it's, you know, children depending on, a pa- on parents or um, people depending on teachers or whatever it is. It's easy to think of those authority roles being abused. And so we worry about saying that dependence grants authority. But abusing authority is precisely what God will never do. And that leads us into the second answer that people give to why God has the right to command us, which is that God is good and wise. He's perfectly good and wise. God sees how all the pieces of creation fit together. He sees how all of our lives interact with each other. And he's able to discern perfectly how everything should go at every moment. How should things fit together? How should 
this interaction take place alongside that one? How should this person interact with that person? God sees that perfectly. He arranges that perfectly. Not only is is God so good and wise to direct everything, but God is good and wise in the sense that what we really desire let me, let me hold on to that thought for a second because I want to introduce the thought before I complete that sentence. The thought that I want to introduce is this idea about, let's think about human desire for a moment. So there's this argument. It's called the argument from desire. It's an argument for the existence of God. If you haven't heard it, it's pretty simple. It's not complicated. The, argue, the idea is that we have lots of desires. We desire food. We desire things to drink. We desire companionship. We desire, you know, fill in the blank. All sorts of different things that we have desires for. And people have said, well, look, look at all those desires. There are things that could potentially fulfill all of those desires. You may not be able to get them, but there's something that could fulfill any desire you name. Except that it feels like even if you had all those desires fulfilled, there's something missing. There's some extra desire that's hard to put a name on, but there's something that's missing. And people have suggested that desire is, is a desire for God. It's the, the God-shaped hole in our hearts. There's something that we're missing and that thing is God. And so the idea is if there's something that fulfills all of our desires except this one, well, maybe there's something that fulfills all of our desires. And so this is an argument that God exists based on the fact that we have a desire for God. So what comes up in this passage is something similar to that. And I think we see it in the idea that All things were created through him and for him. If everything is for Jesus, that means that Jesus is the end. He's the telos. He's the purpose. He's the fulfillment of everything. And so I I want you to think about all the different desires that you have in relation to the things the Bible says about Jesus. So we, we hunger for food, right? And the Bible says that Jesus is the true bread. We, we thirst for things to drink. And Jesus is the giver of true water. Remember this from, um, there's a, a place where he's meeting a woman at the well in Samaria and he says this to her. We uh, hunger for love. Jesus is the lover of our souls. We want friendship. Jesus is our heart's true friend. We want family. Jesus is our brother who brings us into our father's presence. We want achievement. Jesus is the victor who won the triumph and invites us to share it. We thirst for purpose. Jesus is the reason, the logos, the logic of reality. We want comfort. Jesus is the comforter of our souls. We want peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. We want forgiveness. Jesus is the redeemer. We want excitement. Jesus calms storms and walks on water. You ever thought about why heaven won't be boring? It's not just because we're going to be doing lots of things there, though we are. It's because Jesus will be there. He is the thing that we desire. Underneath all of our desires, everything that we are uneasy for and anxious for, what you actually want is Jesus. Every single desire that you have points to him. That is what you actually want. That's what we all actually want. What this means is that being a person without knowing Jesus is kind of complicated. Because, I mean, we all know being, being a person can be kind of frustrating, right? I mean, there, there's, a, there's a line from Macbeth, actually, that co- captures this really well, and I'll read you that line in a second. But I was also just thinking, I was walking around Borders the other day, and I saw, or Barnes & Noble, I guess Borders went out of business, what, like 10 years ago? Anyway, the, the bookstore that still exists, I was walking around that one, 
Um, and uh, they had a, a, a shelf, you know, discover great new authors. And I didn't actually do this, but I was imagining, you know, you could imagine going to the last chapter of each of those new novels. And what do you think you'd find there? It'd probably be light and joy and happy, right? And everything going well. No, I mean, it's going to be cap- it, book, novel after novel captures this sense that there's a problem, this sense that human life can feel meaningless, it can escape our grasp. I'll read you the line from Macbeth. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And that line, sound and fury, that's actually the name of a Faulkner novel, which is devoted to unpacking this whole idea that life is sound and fury, it's a flash in a bucket and then it's gone. What does it all mean? We don't know. It's chaotic. Um, I was reminded of this same issue actually last night. I was talking to a, a gentleman who was telling me about his son who just started high school and just started ROTC. And he was saying how ROTC is really helpful for kids that, um, which is pretty a lot of kids, but the idea is that you don't totally know where, there are a lot of expectations put on you. A lot of people want different things. It seems kind of complicated. You know, you're told some things are good, but they're always qualifiers. Yeah, but not too much of that. Yeah, but you also have to worry about this. And in ROTC, it becomes very simple. You're supposed to do certain set tasks that um, are achievable. You could do it if you work hard. And if you do that, you'll get praised. And so it provides structure. It simplifies things. Without Jesus, it's, it's a mess. It's like we're looking for structure, and you can find the structure of something like ROTC or whatever, you know, something similar for adults, but those structures are going to be a little bit artificial. The structure that's built into ourselves, built into our beings, the logic of creation, the logic of what it means to be human is Jesus. He is the logos, the one in whom all things hold together. And if we see him and we say the, see the way he lives, what it looks like for him to live, then we begin to see what it looks like to be a person, what it looks like to be ourselves. The, um, the Bible teaches that we're made in the image of God, but it also teaches that we're meant to be conformed to the image of his son. So we're made in the image, Jesus is the image, but we're meant to become more like Jesus. This is from Romans chapter 8, for those whom he foreknew, he being God, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So I want to wrap up, but I want to wrap up by talking about what kind of king Jesus is. What is he doing with his power? That's where this passage goes next, and it's an appropriate way to, uh, to end our, our thoughts this morning. Um, what is he doing with his power? He's exercising it for our good. He's exercising it for our good. And we get to, I want to just show you one glimpse of how that, how that works. So to see that, first think about that experience. Try to imagine that experience that you might have reading the Gospels and seeing how poised Jesus is, how compassionate, how courageous, how kind, how gentle, how forgiving. Now there's something thrilling and exciting about that because you see, that's, I could be, that's, that's what it would, that's, I want to be like that. But there's also something very disturbing about it, too. There's something depressing about it. Because you see that, and then if you're being honest and you, you see yourself, you recognize how far you are from being that. We are woefully less than what we ought to be. Now, how can we become what we ought to be? 
How can we become like Jesus? Well, remember our dependence, right? The only way we're going to be like Jesus is if we're with Jesus. If Jesus is able to, uh, to, to, to help us to be like him, to, to, to fill us with his life, to help to teach us, to guide us, to form us. Okay, so how do we get to be with Jesus? Well, to be with Jesus, it's very simple. You just have to be like Jesus. Because, I mean, if you're going to be in the presence of, of the perfect holy God, you better be, you know, you can't be this, this sinful person. I mean, you can't be this, this fallen sinful person. So, I mean, see the problem here. If you, if you need to be, you want to be like Jesus, you need to be with Jesus. But if you want to be with Jesus, you need to be like Jesus. And we are neither like nor with Jesus. So how do you get there? How do you overcome that gap? This is exactly what's talked about at the end of this passage, just beyond, just at, at a, verse 26. Paul talks about the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What is that mystery? That mystery is the mystery of the Old Testament, the mystery of the entire Old Testament, which is how can an unholy people enter the presence of a holy God? We just talked about why an unholy people would need to enter the presence of a holy God. But think about why it's difficult for that to happen. Think about the Old Testament. Think about Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the sort of pinnacle moment of the interaction between humans and God in the Old Testament. They're they're by a mountain, and God is going to reveal himself to them on this mountain, and they literally need to put up rails to cordon off the mountain because if anyone steps foot pass these rails into the place where God's going to manifest his presence, they will be instantly destroyed. If unholy people enter the presence of a holy God, it's instant destruction. It's just cause and effect. It's like fire and paper. The two things cannot come into contact without complete and utter annihilation of the thing that is unholy. In Hebrews it talks about, it says that our God is a consuming fire, which is actually given in commentary on Sinai, on this very experience. And in that passage in Hebrews, the the context is saying, we don't come to a mountain like this one. We don't come to this place roped off. We don't have to be afraid of the presence of God. Why not? How is this this problem, this mystery overcome? That's the rest of, of, of our passage. That's um, 18, 19, and 20. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The true image became like the marred, the scarred, the disrupted images. The, the holy and perfect one who deserved nothing but blessing and had the right to rule over everything and to command everyone took that cause and effect, utter destruction that would happen when an unholy person enters the presence of a holy God in our place. He took our sins on himself, meaning that he took all of the evil, all of the punishment, all of the, the legal demands, that co- the, the punishments required for the crimes we have committed on himself so that we can take his place with God, so that we can become like we're meant to be, so that we can become like the true image, so we can be conformed to the image of the beloved son. 
And the result of that is the result of, uh, is what is said about this mystery in verse 27. To them God chose, so to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What Jesus made possible is union with Christ. We can be united to him. He erases the problem with us not being like him and therefore not being able to be with him by becoming like us. And so we can become with him. So we then can become like him. People who grew up in the church may not have had this experience, but people who've converted to Christianity, I think sometimes have. I know it was certainly my experience when I converted to Christianity. I found that um, I, beca- I certainly was very different after becoming a Christian than before. But I felt like I, had also was, I, like I also was becoming more like myself. More like the self that I, had, that I had lost. More like the self that I wanted to be. More like my image of myself. Freedom is always freedom from something to pursue something else. Why would we want to be free from Christ's command? To be free from Christ's command could only be free to become something less than we're meant to be. To disappoint our own expectations for ourselves if we're honest about what those expectations are. But to be free from the things that hold us back from Christ. To be under his authority. That's to be free to become the, thing, the, the types of beings that we're made to be. And to, ex- to experience the, the fulfillment of the desires that we were created with. These desires for community, for communion with the one who made us. Pray with me. Lord, help us to see who you are and therefore to trust you. Help us to see why it is such a good thing for us to be under your authority. Help us to be under your authority. Help us to trust you, to entrust ourselves to you. Rule over us, guide us, help us, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.